Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good evening, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Rahim. This is your brother Idris Al Bakri, and I'm, I'm honored to be hosting uh, tonight's virtual mosque event. I'm a little nervous because I've got like two monitors staring at me, I've got a director in the back cameras, the mosque masjid subhanAllah has been turned into a recording studio, mashallah. Um, but before we get to our program, uh, we want to seek the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty, through the recitation of the Quran. Tonight's recitation will be by Afnan Mukhtar, a grade 12 student at GH Bronze Collegiate and an active youth in our community. Afnan, go ahead. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم للرجال نصيب مما ترك الوالدان والأقربون والأقربون وللنساء نصيب مما ترك مما ترك الوالدان والأقربون مما قل منه أو كثر نصيبا, ما ما نصيبا مفروضا وإذا حضر القسمة أولو القربى واليتامى والمساكين والمساكين فارزقوهم منه وقولوا لهم قولا معروفا وليخشى الذين لو تركوا من خلفهم ذرية ضعافا خافوا عليهم خافوا عليهم فليتقوا الله وليقولوا قولا سديدا إن الذين يأكلون أموال اليتامى ظلما إنما يأكلون إنما يأكلون في بطونهم نارا وسيصلون سعيرا يوصيكم الله في أولادكم للذكر مثل حظ الأنثيين فإن كن نساء فوق اثنتين فلهن ثلثا ما ترك وَإِنْ كَانَتْ وَاحِدَةً فَلَهَا النِّصْفُ وَلِأَبَوَيْهِ لِكُلِّ وَاحِدٍ مِّنْهُمَا السُّدُسُ مِمَّا تَرَكَ إِنْ, إن كَانَ لَهُ وَلَدٍ فَإِنْ لَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ وَلَدٌ وَوَرِثَهُ أَبَوَاهُ أَبَوَاهُ فَلِأُمِّهِ الثُّلُثُ فَإِنْ كَانَ لَهُ إِخْوَةٌ فَلِأُمِّهِ السُّدُسُ مِنْ بَعْدِ وَصِيَّةٍ يُوصِي بِهَا أَوْ دَيْنٍ آبَاؤُكُمْ وَأَبْنَاؤُكُمْ لَا تَدُرُونَ أَيُّهُمْ أَقْرَبُ لَكُمْ نَفَعًا فَرِيضَةً مِنَ اللَّهِ Men shall have a share in what their parents and closest relatives leave. And women shall have a share in what their parents and closest relatives leave, whether the legacy be small or large. This is ordained by God. If other relatives, orphans, or needy people are present at the distribution, give them something too and speak kindly to them. 
Let those who would fear for the future of their own helpless children, if they were to die, show the same concern for orphans. Let them be mindful of God and speak out for, for justice. Those who consume the property of orphans unjustly are actually swallowing fire into their own bellies. They will burn in the blazing flame. Concerning your children, God commands you that a son should have the equivalent share of two daughters. If there are only daughters, two or more should share two-thirds of the inheritance. If once, she should have half. Parents inherit a sixth, a sixth each if the deceased leaves children. If he leaves, no children and his parents are his soul hears. His mother has a third, unless he has brothers, in which case she has a sixth. In all cases, the distribution comes after payment of any bequests or debts. You cannot know which of your parents or your children is more beneficial to you. This is a law from God, and he is all-knowing, all-wise. Thank you very much, Afnan. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing and all-wise. Uh, as you can see, Mashallah Afnan had, has a beautiful voice, and every time we have a virtual mosque event, we are trying to feature and, and, and showcase some of the amazing young people like Afnan, brothers and sisters who are applying themselves to study and learn the Quran. And we have a blessed to having so many of them. Thank you very much, Afnan. So I am excited to start our discussion with our guest speaker, Professor Abed Awad, soon. But before that, we have a couple of orders of business to go through. Uh, so first, we are live on YouTube and Facebook. So make sure that you check, check us out there. And if you have any questions or comments throughout this broadcast, you can just enter, enter them into the comment section. And inshallah, we will take them up as, uh, as much as, as we go along. Also, we have a lot, you know, we're going through a lockdown. We have a variety of programs uh, and activities virtually online that will help us, inshallah, uh, cut through this, this difficult time. Upcoming, as you may have seen in the opening slide slideshow, there's a mental health wellness uh, program for youth, specifically for youth, uh, that will be led by Dr. Natasha Ali, the head of our mental health initiative. Um, also, we are having our first, first, first ever social media khatam. So every day on Facebook, uh, a uh, one page of the Quran will be posted. You can re read it and just comment, done. And inshallah, we hope and aim to finish the Quran on Facebook together. And inshallah, we are now, alhamdulillah, into our second juzo. So uh, mashallah, uh, bravo to everybody who's, who's, being, who's a part of that. Imam Atif, and I, you know, I just want to say that with this kind of uh, time, it's uh, nothing is better than be, coming close to the Quran. So Imam Atif is also doing a daily Quran halaqa on Zoom at 7 o'clock every day. And you can find the link for that on the MIA website, miaonline.org. And we welcome your ideas. We are looking for ideas, volunteers, talents to show on Virtual Mosque. So if you have any ideas, please email us, office at miaonline.org or call 204-256-1347. And now for the uh, other order of business, which is uh, announcing the MIA baking competition. And uh, we'll show a video with all the submissions. And then we're going to go live to Janice Lokes, our uh, dear friend and city councilor for Waverly West, who was one of the judges for, uh, uh, for the baking competition. And she will have the honors of announcing the winner and the runner ups. So to the video.
قطع عيناي شوقا ولطيبة ذرفت عشقا فأتيت إلى حبيبي فاهدأ يا قلب ورفقا صلي على محمد Okay, and the winner is so. Uh, w- welcome, Janice. Thanks for being with us. Uh, how how was it? How was it? How was it judging these cakes without tasting them? <laughs> well, yeah, that was the difficult part too. But uh, I tell you, I had to look up my uh, architectural detail of the uh, Kaaba to understand all the different parts and pieces, right? Okay, and, great. Um, yeah. It was uh, it was incredible. It was incredible because we had uh, some of them had the black stone, some of them had the station of Ibrahim, uh, gold doors, uh, the Hatim. Right? It was uh, it was incredible. So, well, boy, yeah. you have really learned. Oh, that was <laughs> great. Look at detail. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. You know, neatness, creativity, attention to detail, uh, a difficulty like this is difficult work. This is detailed, difficult work. So. I want to thank all the other judges. We all had individual scorecards. We scored it. We we handed our scorecards in. Uh, there were six entries, as you saw. Um, the fi- there's there's so there's five runners up, and I just want to acknowledge right now to the runners up. Um, um, MIA applied for a Winnipeg Wellness Grant, which I granted. So they're all going to have a fifty dollars Skip the Dishes gift certificate. Also, the runners up. Wonderful. Um, and. Um, I guess now we'll announce the winner, right? So, so, so everybody wins something, and then the winner gets the hundred dollars skip the dishes uh, gift certificate. Great. Exactly. Yeah. So, so who's the winner? Well, the winner is Dujan Kasas. Dujan Kasas, congratulations, yes. Dujan! You are the winner of MIA's yes. baking competition, yes. uh, and uh, everybody, thank you for your efforts. Thank you, Janice, for uh, agreeing to be a judge and for actually, you know, taking this so seriously as to go to going and learning about the structure and the of the Kaaba and these different parts. Uh, so, Dujan, MIA will be in touch with you and with everybody and uh, with with the with the with the prizes. And thank you, Janice, for always supporting MIA and the Muslim community. So thank you for the grants so we can uh, uh, recognize everybody's efforts in, in uh, making these cakes. It was unfortunate that we could not taste them, but you know, yeah. we're in lockdown, that's okay. And hopefully this will over, will over be soon. And we'll, uh, we'll have a, another competition where we actually can get together and taste these cakes. So mm-hmm. thanks again. Thanks uh, for the judges. Thank you, Janice. Yeah. Thanks to all the participants. And I want to also thank Zaina Abazid who put together this wonderful video for us. She's much of a very talented young, uh, young sister in the community. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, we now can turn to our main topic uh, of, our e- of our evening, discussion that I'm actually personally very excited about. Um, so a few, years ago, a few years ago, I prepared a will, and I had to wrestle with some of the issues uh, about how we can apply uh, you know, Islamic guidelines on inheritance uh, to us Muslims living in Canada and in the Western societies in general. 
And you know, alhamdulillah, many Muslims accept Allah without question. But uh, you know, as Muslims also grow in uh, in knowledge and understanding, and so on, some some of us will have questions, and some of us will want to understand things at a deeper level, and some of us actually, actually may want to even challenge the law, uh, and you know, our, our reasoning might take us there. So you know, do we accept uh, that God can tell us what to do? Do we believe that the Sharia is universal and timeless? And so. I'm very excited to welcome brother, uh, brother and Professor Abed Awad, not just because we share a common Palestinian heritage, uh, um, but because I think he mashallah, sets a wonderful example for how people can actually apply themselves, study, uh, understand their religion deeply, and then use their professional expertise as well to move our, our understanding of Islam from theory to practice. He's got a very, very long uh, biography, which I will try to condense in the, little, in the little time we have. So Abed Awad is a Muslim-American law, law Islamic law expert and a practicing attorney. Uh, he's been teaching at Rutgers Law School for the past 15 years and has taught at Bates Law School and Seton Hall Law School as well. He's a fellow of the International Academy of Family Lawyers uh, and was a contributor and the U.S. editor for several years at SuriaSource.com, a Harvard Law School Islamic Legal Studies project. So over two decades of studying, teaching, and lecturing throughout the U.S. on Islamic law, and as through his own legal practice as well, he knows that many Muslims were opting out of creating uh, Islamically compliant estate plans and wills due to their misunderstanding of the requirements of the Sharia. And so he leveraged his legal expertise, his native fluency in Arabic, and his extensive knowledge of Islamic law to find Sharia-compliant estate planning solutions. He's also the founder of shariawiz.com, that's S-H-A-R-I-A-W-I-Z.com, an online portal that makes estate planning easy, affordable, and accessible. So we're going to uh, structure our discussions we've had, we've done with, with uh, other guests we've had. We're gonna give our speakers some time to offer some opening remarks, and then we'll take your questions and try to engage in a conversation uh, about this, this very very important topic, inshallah. So um, I just wanna uh, say before we start that Brother Abed is, is a practicing attorney in the US and not in Canada. So today we will not be offering any legal advice per se, but we're going to be engaging him in his uh, as a scholar of Islamic law and its application in the West, and we won't be actually giving any specific legal advice. You know, if you need legal advice, you can always take the knowledge you've learned here and go talk and go seek the help of a of, of, a, of a local lawyer. So, Brother Abed, welcome to Winnipeg, although virtually, and uh, over to you with some opening uh, opening remarks. Assalamu alaikum wa salatu wa salam ala sadiq al-amin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Thank you very much for uh, hosting this, uh, Brother Idris. Um, and thanks for the tech team that's behind the scenes who, who make this happen. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very excited and honored to, uh, uh, to be virtually uh, uh, broadcast in, in Canada. You know, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the old movies, uh, Star Trek, so I'm being beamed, <laughs> beamed in, out, yeah. uh, to Canada. Um, so, so the uh, best thing is to, to have a conversation about these issues because people have questions, people have concerns. Um, so maybe placing a little bit of a context is that well, people have to understand um, the Islamic law of inheritance uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia, the, the system was um, tribal driven 
uh, and male dominated because only the children, the males and the males who had the ability to fight and, and work and, um, and participate to, uh, in defending the tribe uh, were the people who were inheriting. Uh, women and female, by and large, were, were not uh, automatic legal heirs uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia. So the tribe really uh, was the socio-economic um, and racial setting uh, for uh, the way society was organized in pre-Islamic Arabia. The genius of Islam came to say conviction transcends tribe, race, color, creed, uh, socioeconomic status, conviction really of this belief in this monotheism, in this oneness of God, was the common bond uh, that created the Muslim ummah. So to, to, to look at the Islamic law of inheritance, you have to look at that particular context. So Islam and the moral Islamic message was, we don't want to leave things to the whims and the discretion uh, of people. Uh, we have a system that needs to be overhauled and the system now is going to make it by operation of divine directive that gender and women are going to receive inheritance uh, that a male has no equitable or legal claim against. So we have to look at the role that Islamic law of inheritance played in actually leaven, leveling the economic playing field between men and women in Muslim society. So that's why you see these pre-prescribed uh, shares that are in Surah An-Nisa. Because the objective here is that you can't play around. This is the divine directive on how we can have economic equity between the sexes, how we can dissolve and circulate, or the better word is devolve and circulate wealth so it's not concentrated in, in, in smaller groups and smaller hands. Um, and that creates a lot of economic activity. So um, there's always divisions of, of, of assets, there's always inheritance, and people uh, continue to uh, progress and grow. Um, and uh, you don't have parents favoring one child over another or a, a relative over another. So we have to look at the Islamic law of inheritance from this equitable, uh, moral um, undergrid or underpinning. So I think with that context, we can then go into some details about what the Islamic law of inheritance is. Uh, I'm happy to um, explain that, uh, Idris, if, if you want me to, or do you have any questions, or do you want me to go ahead uh, and, and give the basics of the Islamic law of inheritance? I think, why don't you continue? I think you're uh, you're kind of uh, uh, leading to something. I think I'd like to have you continue for a few more minutes. And then, inshallah, we've got some questions that we'll, uh, we'll also discuss uh, as we go along. So um, the Islamic law of inheritance can be um, divided into three, set, uh, three levels or three categories. You have what's called Ashab al-Furud. Uh, these are the Islamic heirs who are entitled to a prescribed share. And we, when we say Ashab al-Furud, we mean that the Qur'an expressly states that a, uh, a father receives one-sixth, a mother receives one-sixth. If there are no males and the survivors are, uh, are, are daughters, 
Uh, if it's one daughter, she'll receive one half. If they're two daughters, she'll receive two thirds. If they're maternal siblings, if they're more than two, three maternal siblings and there are no other, there's no uh, grandfather, then the maternal siblings are gonna take uh, one third. So you have these prescribed shares. So these we call uh, ashab al-furud. Then you have uh, what we call uh, the ta'sib uh, takers, which are the, the heirs that would take by uh, residue. So in other words, after the prescribed shares have been distributed, if anything is left, it's going to trickle down to this group of people who take by ta'sib. If you don't have anybody from Ashab al-Furud or from the uh, category of ta'sib to be takers, then it would go to the al-Arham. And these are descendants from your female uh, line and lineage. Uh, and those are very rare. Now, while those are very rare in a Muslim country uh, to have, uh, in, in uh, a mixed religious family, um, converts in, in, in North America, you'll have some of these issues actually coming into, into play. So these are the three categories of who inherits under Islamic law. And there are some rules and principles uh, that the scholars uh, created to use it. In fact, the the, the um, algebra was born from the Islamic law of inheritance because the scholars and the mathematicians had to create uh, algebra to be able to uh, calculate a, a lot of these uh, Islamic inheritance fractions because they can get complicated depending on uh, who are the survivors. Um, and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, وسلم, would say that ilm al-fara'id nisf al-ilm. It's half of all knowledge. So that's why there was a huge emphasis from the scholars to study it and to understand it. Um, you have the uh, two other uh, rules in, in, the, in the Islamic law of inheritance. One's called awal. And awal basically is the uh, when the uh, estate um, is exceeding the 100%, uh, there has to be a reapportionment. Um, and this uh, Islamic legal doctrine is used um, to help you understand how to do the reapportionment. And then you have also ta'sib bil-rad. Rad is basically a return. So when there is uh, money left or assets left in the estate, it explains how uh, that rad uh, is um, is um, distributed upon, uh, uh, upon or among uh, the um, uh, legitimate or uh, taking Islamic heirs. Uh, that is the succinct, you know, uh, uh, idiot's guide to uh, Islamic law of inheritance. Uh, yet it created volumes of commentary and th hundreds of thousands of scholars and writings and fatwas and so forth. But that's the base. And the base of the Islamic law of inheritance is the Quran and the Sunnah but more so the Qur'an is pretty direct and express on detailing how a decedent's estate has to be distributed. And this is an apportionment from God. Thank you for that. Uh, I think that was, was, was very interesting. And we're starting, starting to get into some of, the, some of the details, but I think that helped kind of uh, set the stage for you know, having those who are, uh, you know, the Quran clearly states are heirs and those who are ta'sib takers who uh, take the residue and then the will arham, those who are from the sort of female lineage of, of the deceased. 
Now, you kind of alluded that uh, the Quran came, you know, the Quran doesn't tell us how to pray, for example. It doesn't tell us a lot of details. It leaves them for the Sunnah. But in the issue of inheritance, it's now, uh, it's, you know, um, it's got fractions. It's actually telling us exact chairs. In fact, yesterday, my son was doing his fractions homework. And he's complaining, and I said, here, bring, so we'll bring the Qur'an, and I showed him why he had to understand fractions, because he had to understand the Qur'an. But, uh, and you mentioned that uh, one, of the, one of the reasons for that is uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanting to uh, ensure a more equitable distribution of wealth between the two genders. Are there any, any other underlying principles that uh, are applied in Islamic law of inheritance when it looks at how the wealth is distributed after someone passes away? I mean, it's basically to devolve wealth. So the objective of, of, the, of the Quranic message is that everybody should have a share. And it, doesn't, it, it wants to make it easy that there's not much discretion uh, uh, with the uh, person on how his estate is going to be distributed. You, 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 when you s compare the ummah concept, and the Quranic moral message. It's community driven. It's about responsibility. In a Western based tradition, we are fixated on individual individualism. This absolute discretion, I can do whatever I want. This is about me. It's not about the community. So that's when you see the common law system of inheritance is giving a lot of leeway and discretion with the person on how he can, he can leave his estate. The Quran, given its community-driven uh, parameters, because you're building a socioeconomic just society, it is saying that you have to have a devolution of your estate and everyone should have a peace because that's what's fair. Um, and we don't want to create more internal family friction and fighting because one parent preferred one fa uh, family member as opposed to another. Now, that's why the Quran and the uh, message about the wasiyah in Islam gives you some discretion. So it's kind of the golden mean. It says that if you are wealthy, and um, you have enough uh, assets, you have discretion up to one third of your estate to distribute it to who you wish, except you cannot, uh, in the Sunni law, you cannot give a part of that one third to somebody who's already received a share uh, in the qismet. So we're giving you some discretion, but we wanna make sure that the estates are devolved equitably fairly amongst all family members. So uh, and I, uh, so we, we have discretion up to one third of our estate, but the remaining two thirds has to be devolved to Ahd al-Fara'id and then those who come afterwards. Is that correct? Yeah. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Now you started by talking about uh, pre-Islamic inheritance and how it was basically favoring males and favoring the uh, uh, those who can fight, those who can protect the tribe and so on. But still, I think this is an issue that is, is uh, I think is challenging, in, in the, especially in the West, but I think even in, in modern and Muslim societies, when we look at the share, for example, for a wife, where she gets an eighth, daughters who get half of the sons uh, get and so on, 
And so why is that? And you know, are there, are, why is that even perceived to be unfair? And are there Sharia compliant ways to address you know, modern socioeconomic realities where we find that both males and females, husbands and wives are sharing the financial burden of the family? Oh, absolutely. But always when you, when you wanna find a solution, you want to first try to understand the historical context. We have a, the Sharia is a very sophisticated um, moral legal system. The rules of inheritance uh, were born within a particular socioeconomic structure, the mode of production, labor, uh, tribe, uh, extended family. These are very important um, variables to take into account to understand some of the shares. Once you dig in and understand that, that's when you start to develop Sharia solutions because you're going to look at the changes, the socioeconomic changes today. It's not that the Sharia ha is not going to accommodate the socioeconomic changes. The Sharia rules do not evolve and are not extracted from a vacuum. They're extracted based on variables of that period of time. When those variables of that period of time change, the fiqh rules are going to adjust and change. Because the only thing that's a constant in the sharia is the ultimate quest to serve Allah's directives, which is justice, mercy, fairness, and ethical lifestyle. So we're constantly striving towards that. And when we understand that that's the uh, main objective, our rules are going to evolve according to the underlying circumstances. So in pre-Islamic Arabia, uh, a, a son, see, look at the difference here. In the United States, my son does not have a legal obligation to support his mother. The only person who has a legal obligation to support my his mother is myself, I'm her husband. So she can sue me for divorce and alimony, and I have to support her. But she can't sue her son. Under the Islamic legal system, a son has financial obligations to support his mother, period. So he has to work. He has a responsibility. So there's a legal action. There's a legal cause of action in, in Islamic law for her to sue him. The same for a son in New Jersey and in Canada, I have an obligation to pay child support to my son. But once my son is an adult, I do not have a legal claim that my son support me. But under Islamic law, my son has a legal obligation to support me. I can sue him in court for support. And in every fiqh book, there's a chapter called al-fasl called fiqh al-aqarib. So these are legal obligations. So when you start looking at these legal obligations that were squarely on the males of society, you would understand this disconnect about the percentages of a spouse, of a wife, or of a daughter. So in other words, a, a female's rights, financial rights, she's entitled to own 
operate, manage property. No one has a legal claim against that property for support. But a male who owns property, all his female relatives have a claim against him for support. So these are kind of like the underpinnings of the economic labor in the pre-modern system. But today, most of my clients who are female, and I represent mostly in my career, I've represented uh, uh, Muslim women, they earn more than, a, than their husbands. They're the ones working. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're businesswomen, they're very involved. In fact, I see uh, Muslim women who their brothers are not keeping up with the financial responsibility for their parents. Meanwhile, the daughter is taking that position and supporting her parents. So when you look at these changes in society, of course there are gonna be solutions in the Sharia. One solution in the Sharia for spouses, for a wife, under Islamic law, she's entitled to one-eighth of the estate if the husband had children. If he had no children, she would be entitled to one-fourth of the estate. But under Islamic law, this one-eighth and one-fourth, it is from the net estate. So first, before the distributions of these shares occur, you have to pay all the debts on the estate against the marhum or the decedent, any bequests that he left. Now, what are the debts? Mahr, the mu'akhar al-sadaq, is considered a preferential debt against a decedent's estate. In fact, under Qanun al-Ahwal al-Shakhsiyya al-Masri, al-Suri, al-Urduni, the personal status codes of, of many Muslim countries, including in Pakistan, an unpaid amount of mahr has to be paid from the estate, gross estate, first before there's distributions. So the wife is going to receive her one-eighth if they're children plus the any outstanding mahr. So my clients uh, that come to me and ask for these solutions, and we've automated this solution on shariawiz.com, is we allow you the option to increase your mahr during marriage. Maher is a contractual obligation. As long as you, the husband, voluntarily, without coercion, without undue pressure, decide to increase your maher to your wife during marriage, that's fine. You're obligated to comply with your covenant to contract and your promise. So if you agree to increase it, so your wife is going to receive that maher plus her one-eighth. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. My wife's mahar is the marital residence. We got married. I've been married for um, 27, 28 years. Um, and uh, we started out with nothing. Uh, I, was, I went to law school when I was married. I, I built my career while I was married. So uh, my wife is going to be entitled to uh, a share in all of the sacrifices that she provided for me to help me uh, raise my three children and help me be successful in my career. And the house is a major asset. And I've increased my mahar because my mahar was not very high when I got married. We were young. Um, and she will receive the residence plus whatever inheritance that she would receive. This is a solution that many of my clients have elected to use. And it's sharia compliant and it doesn't uh, impact uh, any of your uh, sharia obligations. Uh, the other solution uh, is based on two theories. You have a, a, a theory that's called 
al-kad wa si'aya. This is in the Maliki school of law. The scholars have basically agreed that if a if a wife works on the family farm, works in the family business, invests her money, pulls her income in the family pot, well, that's her money too. So that means that she has created a legal and equitable claim to the assets that are acquired during the marriage. So you either compensate her uh, for her time or she takes a share from the assets. So she will receive her share from the assets plus her one-eighth. And this is based on a uh, a, a story uh, from uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab. And uh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, Umar ibn al-Khattab, we, we describe him as the just, you know, al-Faruq. Uh, he knew this uh, very well-known um, embroidery uh, woman uh, in Mecca. And uh, she would... Um, weave these beautiful dresses and her husband would go to the souk and sell them. They had no children. Her husband passed away. So strictly speaking, under Islamic law, she would receive a quarter of the estate. And his paternal uh, family would receive three quarters of the estate. So she went to the Amir al-Mu'mineen and said, Amir al-Mu'mineen, that doesn't seem to be fair. You know me, I work all night. And my husband would take the materials and the products that I created and sell them in the market. He says, yes, you're absolutely true. You're gonna get half of that for your contributions and you're gonna get your quarter for your inheritance. So he flipped the formula. She walked away with 75% of the estate and his family 25%. So you could see the justice when you are fixated and inspired by the moral message of the Qur'an and not being a strict constructionist and not looking underlying the moral system. So that was another solution that, that you can have. So I want to ask a follow-up on this. this. This is a very, very enlightening. Um, and Sister Uruj here is, is asking a question uh, on Facebook about property. And you alluded to the house and how you yourself, uh, uh, the mahar the of your wife is the, is the marital residence. So I think in Canada and probably in the U.S., if one of the spouses were to pass away, the house automatically goes to the other spouse. It's just it's considered the, the the marital residence. So, do we need to formalize these Sharia understandings, document them, or can we just accept that this is this is fulfilled by secular law and just kind of uh, and, and go from there? Yeah, well, it's going to depend on your uh, your tolerance level. So, under Islamic law, there is no concept of right of survivorship. So, usually. In the U.S., and I, I, I don't know Canadian law very well. I mean, I've, I, I've testified in Canadian courts uh, often on on paper, um, but I would assume it's similar to the U.S. So you can own a property when you're married with the right of survivorship, which basically means that the survivor takes the entire house upon the other uh, spouse's death. So if I die, my wife gets the whole house. If she dies, I get the entire house. Now that right of survivorship is not permitted under Islamic law. So what you could do is basically, either you're gonna change title to the home to be 50-50 without the right of survivorship. Meaning that when a person passes away, 
his 50% will be distributed according to the Sharia. And the other survivor gets his 50%. Um, you can do it that way. The other way is you can simply document this as your maher. So that in itself is what your intentions were. And that was the effective uh, method of transferring this asset to your wife within the Sharia framework and not relying on the right of survivorship. It's kind of like form over substance almost. So I, I see your, your, your particular point. So it's about tolerance of the, of the parties. So what about daughters? And you touched on daughters and, and sons. So I, alhamdulillah, I'm, for example, blessed with two boys and two girls. Um, and I do expect that my daughters here in Canada are going to probably be supporting their families. So is there something I can do uh, to aid them as I'm going to aid the boys as they inherit from me uh, in their financial burden throughout their lives? Now, there's a couple of, uh, a couple of scenarios. Uh, number one, you can gift your daughter's uh, property in your lifetime. So that would be a hiba, a gift, and that's legitimate. Um, if you don't have that kind of flexibility, then you have the option of um, asking your son uh, to consent to release or decrease his share in favor of his sister to be equal. The problem is that this kind of dis uh, um, what we what we would call um, a disclaimer or a release under Islamic law can only be effective upon your death. So upon the father's death, the sons have to reaffirm that they're going to release some of their inheritance in favor of their sisters so that they would receive equal share. There is a hope that some of the scholars in the West would agree if the, if the sons are adults, that they can waive in your lifetime. Um, but there has not been a decision if that would be acceptable. Um, the other uh, role, the, what, the, the way that we approached it in Sharia Wiz, because we cannot take too much liberty, we, we have to try to stay within the framework, is we include in your will, if the, if the father or, or mother has children, it would say, son, I told you in my lifetime, when I die, please reduce your share in favor of your sister. I know that you're not obligated to do that under Islamic law, but I just hope that you would uh, fulfill my uh, my intentions. Because so that's what, the way we use it in Sharia Wiz. Because the challenge, as you, you mentioned earlier, that uh, a daughter or a mother can sue the son for support if the son is, is delinquent in supporting their, their female relatives. But in, this, in the West, that's not possible. That's there's, not there's, no, there's no obligation. No okay. obligation. Okay. That's why... Now there's another solution, but this solution, believe it or not, even though it's the Jafari solution, the Shi'i law solution, it has been adopted by Sunni scholars in Egypt. So you have what's called uh, the one-third wasiyah that we discussed earlier. So you have discretion within one-third of your estate uh, to give it to whoever you wish. Sunni law says, la wasiyah liwarith. There's a, a very strong hadith that says, la wasiyah liwarith which means you cannot leave that one-third to your daughter. The Shi'i and Jafari position, they do not accept that hadith. So they allow a wasiyah to a warith. So the um, 
personal status code in Egypt has adopted this particular interpretation. And what happens with some clients, what they would tell me, they're going to use that one third to give to their daughter to equalize uh, the, the distribution. But again, that's a Shi'i position adopted by some Sunni fatwas in, uh, in Azhar in Egypt, but it's not the majority position. Um, and I, but I think Azhar does 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 recognize the Jafari madhab as one of the madhabs that that are established in Islamic law. Yeah. Um, you know, as as Muslims in the West, we have many families who are um, uh, have Muslim and non-Muslim members. Whether we have converts who marry into the faith, uh, marry someone who's Muslim, uh, or who disconvert, and they also have you know parents or siblings uh, or even children who are not Muslim. And generally, I think the understanding is that uh, a non-Muslim does not inherit from a Muslim. Um, but, um, you know, I would, has, has the Sharia traditionally dealt with this issue, you know, as the Muslim, Muslim world expanded into Syria and Iraq and, uh, and Egypt? And it, for, for, for centuries, it was actually a mixed Muslim, non-Muslim society. How have the scholars dealt with these issues as conversion rates increased and as more people became Muslim from, from other faiths? Oh, very easy, because in, in, in all traditions, there were prohibitions against uh, inheritance to uh, another uh, religion. And, and people think of this as, oh, that's, that's you know, so not fair and so forth. I understand if we're looking from a prism of a multicultural, plural, legal, secular system, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you, you would take exception to say, oh, well, because, you know, your cousin is not Muslim, you, you know, he doesn't get a right to inherit. But the problem is, is that when society was organized based on religious conviction, these are different communities. So you could imagine that your wife is Christian and you live in parts of Syria and Damascus, and all of a sudden you have a claim as the surviving husband to some property that is in the Christian section of Damascus. So all of a sudden you're going to take property away from another community. Um, so, so there, there were good reasons on how this was organized. Of course, today the situation is different. So what the, what the scholars have said is they make a distinction. There are what we call ashab al-furud wa ta'sib, meaning these are who are eligible Islamic heirs. When you're an eligible Islamic heir, you have an automatic share, either by, uh, prescribed or by ta'sib. So if you are not an automatic Islamic heir, that doesn't mean you don't inherit. It just means that you can leave that person up to one third of your estate. So you can see a situation where many of my clients and people that have been using Sharia Wiz who are from a convert background, they would utilize that one third and leave it to their son who's not Muslim or to their parent that's not Muslim. And that's permissible. There's nothing wrong with that. So yes, you can leave a bequest to a non-Muslim. Thank you. I want to make sure we get some to the, some of the questions from the comments. So uh, Mian Hamid is asking, I think it's a very good question. What happens when someone dies without having a will in the U.S. or Canada? Uh, well, basically, you're going to follow the secular intestacy laws. So uh, in, in the U.S., if you were married... Uh, most of the time, you're um, and you have any children, your parents are not going to inherit. Um, if you have uh, children from the same wife in some jurisdictions, they may not inherit, or they'll take a certain uh, 
part of your, of your state, uh, you have no control over it. It's really the, the, the secular intestacy laws would govern. That's why uh, in, in, in most imams in the United States and people that I've worked with, especially al-Majlis al-A'la lishu'un al-Islamiyya fi Amerika Shamaliya, the Supreme Council for Islamic Affairs in North America, they've taken a position that it is a fard to have an Islamic will if you live in North, in North America. Because without an Islamic will, your estate will not be distributed according to the Sharia, and that is that that is against the direct uh, rulings in the Quran. So, so the second part of this question is: What if someone had leaves a will, but it's not, it's not, uh, you know, it's just kind of an informal document that they leave behind at home, and they haven't gone to a lawyer, they haven't had that. Uh, so, w does that have any standing? Yeah. Number one, you don't need a lawyer to make a will. Uh, most people can go online and, and, and make their wills. Most people don't have a complex estate. Of course, if you have complex questions and, and, and assets that are complicated and, uh, you know, you would need legal advice. Uh, it doesn't have to be signed by a lawyer uh, and it doesn't have to be filed with the court. Generally, at least in the United States, the basic formalities is two witnesses witness you sign the will. So you can have a handwritten document saying this is my last will and testament. I want X, Y, and Z, uh, two witnesses, and you sign it, that would be valid. So the the formalities for a valid will are very minimal. They're not that complicated. Okay. I also want to say that we are working on hosting a Canadian Muslim lawyer as well who will, can help us with some of the, the more practical components of this issue as it relates to, uh, to Canada. Another question from the audience, from Tasneem, about paying debts before the distribution. Uh, does it have to be in the will? Because in North America, debts dissolve upon death. Uh, no, generally, death de de debts do not dissolve okay. uh, upon death. Because what, what happens is that, let's say, you know, I was very, I, I knew I, 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 I'm, I'm going to die tomorrow. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to overcharge the credit card and, you know, call it a day. Well, that credit card company has a claim against your estate. So when you go to probate your will or to... Um, close uh, transfer property, you're going to have to uh, provide notice to all creditors uh, that you owe them money. So it doesn't dissolve. Sure. And you don't have to specifically, in, in most Islamic wills and like the Sharia Wiz uh, template, it's basically going to say, after you pay the, the debts, and the debts include any outstanding zakat, any outstanding mahr, um, any outstanding uh, liens and so forth on your estate have to be paid first before there's a distribution. So yes, every will will have a basic uh, payment of debt uh, uh, in general. Now, what you want to include in your will is not your credit cards and your mortgage, because those are going to get paid. But if you took money from your older brother or from your younger sister or from your uncle, you didn't write it down. So how is he going to get paid? So that's why the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that you don't sleep two nights without writing your will because you don't know what's going to happen. So if I took money from my brother and, you know, a year later I passed away and I forgot to acknowledge and write it, he's not getting his money back. So that's why you write those type of personal debts in your will. Thank you. Again, getting more questions from the audience. I do have some of my own, but I want to give also the audience a chance. So we're at, there's a question about adopted kids. And obviously also we have uh, here uh, foster parents and so on. So 
um, can can the one third uh, of the wasiya of the of the will be be used to just to provide them with some leave them with something? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm happy that uh, they asked this question because you know we designed Sharia Wiz to address many of these issues. Number one, we all know that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was an orphan. And we know that the Qur'an has a heightened sense of sensitivity towards orphans and towards a care of the, the young and the orphaned uh, children. So an adopted child is not an Islamic heir because he's not the biological child. He has to keep the, the name of his family. But you are free to leave up to one third of your estate to your adopted children. And we provide that in our um, Islamic inheritance uh, platform. So another question, uh, thank you. It was, so many of our families, uh, especially here in Winnipeg, uh, we are a growing community. Uh, Canada has a very active immigration program. So lots of families coming to Canada uh, from overseas. And um, so, you know, you have the husband and the wife and the kids living in Canada. They might have grandparents overseas, uncles, aunts, and, and cousins, and so on. So if the parents were, one or both of the parents were to pass away, um, the family overseas would be Islamic heirs. But the family here does, here does not have the support system of, of an extended uh, uh, family. Um, so does it not put the family at a disadvantage when some of the some of the some of the inheritance has to go has to move overseas. Well, I mean, yes and no, because number one, we don't know if um, you've been supporting your parents that are overseas. So uh, uh, that's your obligation, and it's a Quranic directive. <coughs> excuse me, that you help support your parents, so they're entitled to a share of your estate. Mm -hmm. But if the uh, parents are self-supporting and they're not in need, um, Islamically most of the time they're going to disclaim. So it's really a, a, an, an issue of timing. So I had a situation, I had a, 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 a relative who had passed away um, and um, he had children, minor kids. His parents, after his death, went to the Sharia court and waived their claims against his estate because they were would be entitled to 1616, would be one third of the estate. They waived it in favor of the children. So our issue, and you can talk to the Muslim scholars in, in Canada, is for them, is a waiver from the parents sufficient for me to exclude them from the will? Or do I have to wait until after I die that my parents would sign the waiver? That's really, it's a matter of timing. Because most parents are going to say, of course I don't want anything from your estate. I want it to go to your children. They have a right to disclaim. But can they disclaim in your lifetime, or does it have to wait until you die? And that's a question that remains seems requires modern jihad, and it's still unresolved. to give us a solution. Right. Okay. I'll take another question from the audience: uh, Would Sharia always be able to help prepare for a will in Canada? I know it's a U.S. product, but can Canadians uh, uh, use it? No, because we are a state-specific American product. But what I've seen with some people in Canada is they would go ahead and prepare their will. Uh, on Sharia Wiz, and this way they have an absolute framework that's incorporated a lot of the Sharia solutions that they select. They take it to a Canadian lawyer, and they could use some of those clauses and some of that language uh, to prepare their uh, Canadian uh, specific uh, legal will. So you could take a template to the Canadian lawyer, and they can work with it and start from exactly. it. 
Okay, okay. Um, yeah, one more question, I think, from the audience: uh, Is the personalized one third on the total or leftover? So, is it is the one third? I guess one third of the residue, or is it uh, the total? No, it's one third from the uh, gross estate. Uh, well, no, it's from the net because you have to pay all debts That's, yeah. before you do that. But technically, you pay all of the debts, then you pay the bequests. Um, and that would be uh, after that one third, the net would be distributed to the legal heirs. So the one third is being paid as part of the debts because it's considered a debt on the estate. So it's got to be paid first. So that one third also is in the aggregate. You cannot exceed the one third. So you can give one person one third or you can give 10 people in the aggregate one third. So the 10 people would share the one third. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Um, on, I was reading on your website, you've got some very useful educational content under the heading of, of halaqa and this, this, uh, this idea of uh, a moral debt that you, know, you may owe your wife a moral debt. You may owe your child who takes care of you uh, a moral debt. Can you, can you elaborate on that and how it comes into play in this, uh, in this, uh, in this concept yeah. of inheritance? We, we see this often, like I said, you know, let's say a, uh, a parent has a, a daughter and a son. The son marries uh, his, uh, his college sweetheart and, you know, he ships out to San Francisco, leaving his parents behind in New Jersey. So he's not there to care for them. Meanwhile, the, the sister, she marries and stays in New Jersey and she's taking the full responsibility to care for her parents. She makes their doctor's appointments. She goes shopping for them. She goes to take care of them in the evening, taking her away from working overtime, maybe not taking a more demanding executive job, um, spending her own money to support her family, to support her parents. So these are a parent can look at, at that circumstance and say, yes, I know you're my daughter and that you're doing this from the goodness of your heart. But if I, if you weren't here, I would have to pay somebody to do these services and to help me. So I, I feel like I have a moral obligation to make you whole, a moral obligation to compensate you for what you did. I, I know that you're doing it for free, but I think I have an obligation to support, to, to pay you back. So you can acknowledge in your will, uh, because she provided services, I owe her $10,000 or I owe her $50,000 and I want her to be paid from my estate. So she will receive that payment of the debt Plus, she will receive her uh, inheritance share as per the Quran. You you may have come across this, and I again, there might be differences between Canada and the U.S. in this in this. But can courts overrule the the will? In the U.S., and again, this is probably also in Canada. The only way you overrule a will is okay. How can you explain this? You can disinherit anyone under U.S. law except your wife. You could leave your entire estate to your cat, and that's legitimate and enforceable, but you cannot disinherit your wife. So in the U.S., most Islamic wills and the Sharia wills template includes a spousal waiver of her state rights, because under New Jersey law, she may be entitled up to one third of your estate if you put it in a will. If you don't give her anything in the will, she can take one third. In the Sharia, she's getting one-eighth or one-quarter. But she has to sign a waiver that I am waiving my rights 
under New Jersey law in favor of my rights under Sharia law. If that waiver is valid, there's no court that's going to be able to overturn it. And it would require the spouse to go contest the will. And the same applies to the husband. He has to sign the waiver because he would get one quarter or one half of the estate uh, in, in exchange for um, his right under, under state law. Thank you. So we are almost out of time. And I'd like to use what, what the little time that we, we have left to have you, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, and I think I'm, I hope you, you don't mind, and I'm uh, uh, asking you to do that and hope that I think it can, inshallah, inspire some of our young folks uh, who are getting into law uh, and, and whatnot to kind of move from theory to practice and to also to uh, go after finding solutions in Islam as opposed to getting kind of stuck and, and having the, this very superficial understanding of Islam and the law. So how did you get here? How did you... How did you end up doing what you're doing today? Um, I, I would say the, the inspiration, you know, I got two things that, 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 you know, my mom and my dad are both my inspiration. My mom is my moral inspiration because she, her Islam is a, you know, Islam bil fitra. So it's kind of innate. It's just like, you know, it's not a politicized Islam. It's not a, it's just Islam. So I grew up in this moral setting. Then my entrepreneurship, it comes from my dad. You know, he's a businessman, entrepreneur, never worked for anybody. So that's where my inspiration came. I was born in, in the United States, but when I was six and a half years old, I returned back to Palestine. And I grew up in Palestine and I went to a Quaker school. I went to an American Quaker school. So I had this background of a very devout mom at home. Uh, with a Quaker, uh, you know, liberation theology growing up in, in, in elementary school and high school. Um, and then I, um, I lived Islam in, in Palestine and, and I lived that natural state. Um, so all of that, what I learned when I got to the U.S. to go to college, um, it just seemed at that period of time, everybody was taking this position that the problem with, uh, with, with Muslim backwardness and Arab backwardness is that their Islam. religion is backward. It was Islam, yeah. Yeah, that it was Islam, you know, and, and that got me into a quest of studying um, and going to graduate school. I finished my undergraduate degree, started uh, in, in my senior year, I, I read uh, Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah, and all of a sudden things started to, to make some sense. And I went to graduate school to study Islamic law at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. And there I stumbled on uh, all these classical texts. And I started learning and saying, well, hold on. This tradition has the ability to create a system of knowledge, produce knowledge, and address a lot of these issues. The religion is not backward. In fact, it is the only way to build uh, a sustainable uh, Muslim civilization that is morally anchored, you can't do it outside of this particular tradition. You gotta, you gotta delve into, uh, into the Quran and into the output uh, of, this, of this society. So I spent, I wrote my MA thesis on the Hadith and a theological philosophical movement called the Mu'tazala. So I learned a lot from that. And from that point, I started delving in and learning Sharia and especially Usul al-Fiqh and saying, 
this is a system that's going to produce knowledge. And that's what inspired me in, in, in law school. I focused on any uh, comparative law and Islamic law courses. And then when I opened my practice, I, I speak uh, uh, fluent Arabic. Uh, I'm, I'm Muslim and understand the culture. My client base was primarily Muslim. So my clients need these solutions. My clients are asking me these questions. So I have to delve in, research, write, and learn so that I can provide solutions. The solutions are there, but it requires us to take the Qur'an seriously because it talks about It tells you to think. It doesn't tell you to be a strict constructionist. So that's my, my basic background. My, my background is growing up in a Muslim country um, understanding the beauty and the um, innocence of Islam, um, and that inspired me, and and that's what moves me now. And my mom, my sisters, uh, my wife, my daughter, that drives me to understand about gender equity, and that Islam, the Prophet in his uh, in his wada uh, speech, he talked about. And where's our community about this? So, so that's my drive. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, the next generation, if they follow the works, if there's anybody listening, if you really want to learn, you read two people that are writing now. Taha Abdul Rahman, the most important Muslim philosopher alive. And he's from Morocco. He's in his 70s. He, he has created an entire philosophical uh, movement anchored in the Quran. Uh, very, very fascinating and important guy. And the other person who's writing in English is Professor Wael Halak at Columbia University, who was at McGill in Canada. He's the other most significant historian of Islamic law. These are two people that are providing the theoretical framework for Muslims to build their own epistemology, to build their own moral system, to adapt and contribute to make the world better. You talk about uh, producing knowledge. And uh, uh, can you, what do you mean by that? I mean, what does it mean to produce knowledge for Muslim minorities living in the West? Uh, I can understand, for example, if we're trying to address the the Malays of the Middle East, of the Arab world, of the Muslim world, but we are, we're here just as small minorities you know, kind of struggling to, to, to survive, let alone thrive. So what, is that, what does that mean? Oh, it means a lot because uh, Islam as a moral system and the Sharia as the epistemology per excellence of, of the Muslim tradition, it has the ability to provide knowledge and solutions to the modern ailments that we face today. So let's talk about the ailment of economic inequity in Canada and in the United States. When in the United States, the top 1% own 40% of the assets and wealth of this country. The top 10% own 90% of the wealth of our country. When we have poverty, the destruction of the environment, the abuse of animals, all of this you can produce knowledge from the Islamic tradition to provide answers. Let's talk about, I mean, if we have just a couple of minutes, we can talk yeah, about animals. Please. Okay. I was reading a, an interview on who the father of modern animal rights. And the father of animal rights is this guy named Berg in New York that he started advocating for animals in the 
1850s, 1860s. Because people were with their horses, they were beating the horses, they're abusing the horses, they're uh, killing the horses, uh, abusing animals. And he had to build a lobby and get legislation passed in the 1880s and 1900s relating to animal rights. The Prophet Muhammad, 1300 years earlier, prohibited the torture of animals. In fact, after you slaughter an animal, given that we all know about the halal slaughter, that you have to slaughter with a very sharp knife and, and you got to uh, hit it from the uh, slice, the, uh, uh, the throat so it doesn't suffer. You cannot skin that animal until it is room temperature because the Prophet Muhammad said you got to wait to make sure that the soul of the animal exited the body. Otherwise, it would be considered torture. You want to see how they skin the animals in the um, meat packing industry in the United States or in Canada? Well, look at how they kill the animals or how they kill the, the, the chickens and so forth, the torture that animals go through. So we have scholars at Harvard, Professor Stilt, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Professor Talut from, from Morocco, working that the human rights basis for animal rights that is available in Islam surpasses what we have today in Western legal system. Because we're a moral-based system, not a profit-based system. We're a community-responsible system, not an individualism system. So this is what our community, our scholars and us, I'm American as apple pie. I was born in this country. My wife is American. My kids are born here. I've represented the Democratic Party in international conventions. There's nobody more American and apple pie than me. So I have an obligation as an American who happens to be Muslim is to contribute to make America better. Its economics is not morally based. Its animal rights is not morally based. So there's a lot of these things that we can produce to help society, even in the medical system. Look at the, the medical system that we have in the US. We haven't, we haven't even been able to distribute the vaccines because we view healthcare as a business. As a product, yeah. You know? So these are things that, and, and many other faith-based communities agree with us. Um, and moral philosophy is the happening influx uh, area in most universities in the West because we have a moral decay and a moral bankruptcy. We have to find solutions. And we as Muslims have a right to be on the table to provide solutions. It's not making the Muslim. This is not about converting people. Just like every other community and tradition is contributing to world civilization and knowledge, we too have something to say, and we too have something to contribute. Absolutely, but to be able to do that, we need to, know where we're coming from our religion we need to have a deep understanding of it and also have the moral courage to to to, to put forward these solutions and these positions on a variety of issues brother i would we can go uh, all night uh, uh uh but unfortunately we are out of time i know it's you're also ahead of us in, in on the time zone so it's getting late for you so i want to uh thank you so much for joining us for I think it was a very enlightening and uh, uh, educational, educational and just eye-opening discussion. And I hope we can impose on you again to host you again on the virtual mosque here in uh, in Winnipeg. And also, inshallah, after COVID-19 is over, to to have you come out and visit. 
We promise to invite you in the summer only because I don't think you can put up with the cold here uh, in uh, in February or January or December. Um, so Jazakallah khair. I think it's uh, uh, this topic is at the inter intersection of you know some of the core concepts of our religion, our submission to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, our view of the Sharia as a universal and dynamic uh, system of law and knowledge production, and its ability to address changes. Jazakallah khair. We very much appreciate your time with us uh, here tonight. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Idris. It was is really a pleasure. I look forward to stay uh, engaged, and um, uh, inshallah, the next generation is going to uh, make a difference and 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 a renaissance of what we can contribute to make the world better is on its way. Inshallah, Allahumma amin, Allahumma amin. And for everybody, I want to thank you for joining. I want to say that today we focused on concepts and theory. And uh, inshallah, we will. We're working on a follow-up. Inshallah, maybe next month or in March, where we'll host a Canadian Muslim lawyer <laughs> to discuss, you know, Muslim family law uh, in the in the in the Canadian context and some of the more practical components of how this knowledge that we've acquired today uh, from Brother Abid can be applied in the Canadian uh, context. Uh, thank you for joining us. I want to again congratulate Dujan Qassas for winning the MIA baking competition. I want to thank uh, Usaid Khan, uh, Ammar Al-Miski, and, uh, and Sajid, what's his last name? Sajid Khan as well. Uh, they're the guys behind behind the cameras, uh, running the, the streaming and so on. And they have actually been working hard on putting all of these uh, virtual mosque programs on podcasts. So now if you go to um, all of the major podcast providers, Apple, Google, and so on, you'll find a new search, Matibo Islamic Association, you will find the podcasts of these of these segments. So may Allah bless them for their efforts. And again, I want to especially thank our guest, Professor Abed Awad, for his time and, and energy. And, you know, I've, I, I find him just a very inspirational individual. May Allah bless him and increase him in knowledge and wisdom, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.